Thanks, Mark. We're starting a new teaching series, and what I want to do this morning is is um, give a brief overview of the journey we're going to take and talk about some of the landmarks we're going to stop at on the way uh, that we're going to park at for a while. A.W. Tozier said, he was, a, he was a minister, an author from the mid-1900s. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what, we would, what, of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Francis Chan, in his book, um, The Forgotten God, he echoes this sentiment when he says, there is a big gap between what we read in Scripture about the Holy Spirit and how most believers and churches operate today. If I were Satan, he goes on to say, and my ultimate goal was to thwart God's kingdom and his purposes, one of my main strategies would be to get churchgoers to ignore the Holy Spirit. Jesus put the coming of the Holy Spirit front and center on the eve of his death in John chapters 14 to 16. It's oftentimes called the Last Supper Discourse, where Jesus is saying his final words to his disciples before he's going to be crucified. And over and over again, he presses upon them the fact that the Spirit's coming was absolutely imperative for the continuing of his purposes on the earth. So the overarching series title, if you want to call it that, for the next several weeks and even months is The Spirit-Filled Church. The Spirit-Filled Church. We want to spend time looking at marks of a church that's led by and empowered by and, and filled with the Holy Spirit. There's five marks we want to look at and we want to spend three or four weeks on each mark. All uh, throughout the entire series going back to this is a mark, this is what a spirit-filled church looks like. This is a characteristic or a mark of, the spirit, of, a, of a spirit-filled church. So how does the spirit energize and empower the church? Well, these are the five marks we're going to look at. Okay, We're going to look at worship. The spirit energizes and empowers and strengthens and fuels worship. Now, worship is not just singing songs. Oftentimes, we think of worship merely as what we just got done doing, right? Singing the songs that the leader up front is leading us in and and singing the words on the screen. It, It is not just singing songs. It is much more than that, but it certainly does include singing. Ever thought about the biggest book in the Bible? is a collection of songs, right? 150 songs given to the Israelites and given to the church. What a blessing that is. 150 songs collected for us. God is a God of singing. And we exist to glorify God and to worship him. So the spirit of God comes and energizes and empowers his gathered people to Worship, deep, true, passionate, reverent worship, celebrating the God who is there and the God who has done wondrous things for us. Another characteristic we're going to look at is community. 
a togetherness. There is there's something so powerful. Ephesians 4 talks about the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintaining that, something that God has given us and we are called to maintain it. This, I don't want to redo last week's message. This is what Reed talked about last week. Unity, this community together. A deep, genuine community where friendships are formed and deepened and growing and people are doing life together. There are dozens, in the, in the New Testament, there are dozens of passages that use the two words, one another, right? One anothering with each other, right? Doing life together, serving one another and forgiving one another and loving one another and giving to one another, encouraging one another and so forth. Another characteristic we're going to look at is spiritual growth. Spirit-filled church is a church where People are growing. You know, spiritual infants are becoming spiritual toddlers, are becoming spiritual adolescents, are becoming spiritual teenagers, are becoming spiritual adults. People are maturing. People are growing in Christ. The last verse of Second Peter, Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And where the Spirit is active and working and empowering and energizing, that happens. There's an environment where people are growing. People are becoming more like Jesus. There's personal sanctification going on. Transformation. 2 Corinthians says, Whoever's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. New things are coming in. We're becoming more like Christ. Another characteristic or, or, or a mark we're going to look at is a spirit-filled church is, is a church where Christians are equipped for ministry. Paul also says that in Ephesians chapter 4. He talks about the saints being equipped for the work of ministry so that it's not just a small group of people, but the entire church is empowered by the Spirit to do the work of ministry that God has called us to do, whether it's in the church or outside of the church. And finally, the last mark we're going to look at is a spirit-filled church is a church that's reaching out. It's outward-facing. Um, it's taking the gospel. It's taking the, the message of Jesus. It's having compassion and mercy for those around us. And it's taking the message and the works of Jesus outside and to those around us, whether it means your next door neighbor, the person in the office or cubicle next to you at work, or going to another country even. So as we work through this series, uh, we are going to be stretched. I mean, I know that I already have been as I've thought through this and prayed through this, and it might be painful at times. Anyone here ever, you remember specifically a time when God was really growing you and it wasn't painful? It just is. Like when kids, you know, and they're going through growing pains and their legs are aching because they're growing. But the Olympic champion doesn't become an Olympian, let alone a champion, by sitting on the couch. And by resting and relaxing during training season, they become an Olympian and a champion by overcoming obstacles and by enduring the painful 
training that's required to be an Olympic, to be an Olympian and a champion. And they do all this for a temporary medal, don't they? I remember during the, the Olympics, uh, the ones here recently, I'm not sure if it was last summer, I think it was, and just to hear, like the swimmers, how many laps and miles they would swim a day. Oh my goodness. For a little circle medal. I mean, it's important, don't get me wrong. It's awesome, it's amazing, but just for something that's just here for a little while and then it's going to go away. Right? That's what Paul says. He says, athletes, they endure this. They train for a perishable medal. But he says, as Christians, we're running for an eternal medal. We're training for something far greater than that. For a prize that can never be taken away. It'll never perish. And so how much more should we be willing to overcome obstacles, be willing to face weaknesses in ourselves, and endure the pain of God's training program to become all that he wants for us to be, whether it be individuals or as a church, to win the prize. This will be a series that, in a sense, it doesn't so much, it's not meant so much to describe what we currently are, but what we want to be, and what, by God's grace, we will be more and more. My prayer is that from week to week, people will have powerful encounters with God. I mean, that's my desire, and that's my, my prayer for this morning, that as we gather and worship, as we gather and talk about these things, that the Spirit visits us in a powerful way, and we have powerful times together where we encounter Him, the nearness of God's presence as Mark prayed, My prayer is that we would have fresh infillings of the Spirit and that our hearts would be set on fire like never before. I think of Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul's talking to this church. They're, They're Christians. He loves them, but they've fallen into some error. And he's and he asks them, he says, Does he who supplies you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it because You've been obedient to the law because you've heard with faith. And my desire, my prayer is that as we come together and we hear with faith, week after week, that the Spirit would come powerfully and work miracles among us and do mighty things. So, last week's message on unity and this week's text help point the way forward, kind of serve as introduction before we launch into the series a whole hog, head first next week, okay? So in the time we have left, I want to briefly look at Ephesians 2.22. And so let me read it again. Mark read it just a few moments ago. Let me read it again, and we're going to dig into it for a while and see what it has to say to us. Ephesians 2.22 says this, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's the big idea from this passage. I I think it's pretty straightforward. The church is a spiritual house where God lives. Anyone here ever had like a large family come stay with you for a period of time? I know like, I know the Rise have hosted the Loudermilk, so you got like seven or eight and then another seven come. 
And so the Loudermilks dwelt in the, the rye house with them. And the Loudermilks' presence was known. Not just because Brian's there. <clears throat> but because there's a lot of them. And because they made their way through every room in the house and they were active and they were working and not working, they were active and they were talking, they were there. The church is a spiritual house where God lives. The church is not meant to be a place where people are entertained. But one thing I think we should never be able to say about church is that it's boring. If God is here and God is speaking through his word and God is acting upon people and God is invading our lives and God is showing us things and God is changing us and God is connecting us with other people and God is leading us to pray and serve and love one another, then the one thing church should never be is a yawn, is boring. Not entertaining, but not boring. God lives here. God lives here. So the big idea is the church is a spiritual house where God lives. The church is God's house on planet earth. Isn't that amazing? God has chosen to dwell specifically among his people and in his people, and that is his only house on planet earth now. Not a physical dwelling. He doesn't dwell within the confines of the four walls of this building. He dwells among us. Therefore, we must see ourselves as a spiritual house where God lives. And we must also be people of God's presence. One of the most amazing passages in the Bible to me, and it's, you may differ with me on this, but I always scratch my head whenever I read this. Genesis 28. Jacob is in the wilderness. He lies down. He has this amazing vision of heaven opened and angels ascending and descending on a ladder. And he wakes up and says, oh my goodness, God was here and I didn't even know it. How often when I say the church, us gathering here today, we are a house of God. How often, if we were honest, would we leave and say, God was there. I'm not even sure I realized it. From this, path, from this verse, it's just a short verse, I want you to see three things. Okay? So the big idea is the church is a spiritual house where God lives. I want you to see three things that help support this big idea. First, the first thing I want you to see is that all three persons of the Trinity are at work in cooperation and building this spiritual house. All three persons we see in this one short verse, they're all at work in cooperation it's not the Father alone or the Holy Spirit's kind of doing his own thing apart from the Father and Son. No, they're all in cooperation in the building of this house. Second, I want you to see that this is a fulfillment of God's promise. And third, I want you to see, see this is an ongoing construction project God is at work in. So first, notice all three persons of the Trinity are, at wor- are working in cooperation. Let me read the verse again. See if you can pick up on this. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Christians believe 
in the truth that God is triune. In fact, so in other words, there is one God that exists in three co-equal and co-eternal persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are distinct, distinct persons and yet one God. It's a mystery. We cannot wrap our minds around it. Every time someone's tried to wrap their minds around it, they end up going into heresy because they deny something that we need to affirm. God exists, one God, in three persons. And we see all three persons in cooperation, building this dwelling place for God. Notice first the phrase, in him. The first two words of the verse, in him. Namely, in Christ. We see this this is Jesus in view from the preceding verses. Verses 20 and 21, if you have your Bibles open, it says, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He fits, everything fits together in him, and he holds everything together. Verse 21 says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then verse 22, In him you also are being built together in Christ. One of Paul's favorite ways to describe a Christian is a man or woman in Christ. When I, next time you read through like Ephesians or Romans, one of Paul's letters, do this exercise. Count how many times Paul says in him or in Christ or in Jesus Christ. It's all over the place. A Christian is a man or woman who is now in Christ. Paul says here, in Christ, you also are being built together to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's what that means. We at one time were in Adam. As part of the fallen human race. And because we were in Adam, we had a sin nature and were under the curse and under God's death sentence. But when we got saved, we were taken out of Adam and placed in Christ. And all of a sudden, instead of being under a curse and having a sin nature, we are given the righteousness of God in Christ. We are given eternal life. And in view in this passage, we are joined to the people of God, the church. Therefore, because you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you've been given the privilege of being joined to the spiritual house where God lives as a gift of God's grace through Christ. It's a gift of God's grace through Jesus. Next, look at the fact that not only is Jesus at work, it's in him that we are joined together but look at the fact that we are a dwelling place for God. Our omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent Father God dwells here among us. Right here in this place. The final destination of the gospel is the Father. Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You guys know how the rest of the verse goes? No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus very clearly says that is the destination we are all headed to. We are all heading to our Father in heaven. But this passage says 
that the Father has come to us to dwell among us. What an amazing, amazing thing. The Father making his home among his children, among us. And then finally, we see how the Father does this. It's by the Spirit. We are built together to be a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. The Father makes his home with us by the Spirit or by agency of the Spirit. So when Jesus talks about, in John 14, when Jesus talks about coming to his disciples, he tells them, I'm going to leave soon, but don't worry, I'm going to come to you again. And later on in John 14, he says, whoever loves me and keeps my words, my father and I, we will come and make our home in him. He's talking about by the Holy Spirit. So the church is a spiritual house where God lives and all three persons of the Trinity are at work in cooperation. Here's a second point I want you to see from, uh, regarding the church being a spiritual house where God lives. It's a fulfillment of God's promise. It's a fulfillment of God's promise. It was always God's plan and desire to dwell among his people. It was ruined in the garden, wasn't it? I mean, Adam and Eve had this intimate fellowship with God. Where in Genesis 3, it kind of indicates that, that they walked in the, in the cool of the day together, speaking to one another, and then Adam and Eve sinned and lost all of it. It was catastrophic. Human beings, image bearers of God, were banished from his presence. Right? It says that Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. I mean, that's major. They were driven out of the garden. And every human being born since then has been born alienated from God. There's this infinite chasm between those lost in their sin and God. We see God's intention to dwell with his people restored partially in the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. When God brought his people out of Egypt and they were in the, de- and they were in the desert, they were in the wilderness, God gave Moses exact instructions. He says, build it just as I tell you, this tabernacle, and I will dwell in the midst of you. He took up an offering and the materials to build the, the tabernacle were collected and the tabernacle was instructed. And listen to what happens in Exodus 40 once the tabernacle is built. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. That's amazing. Moses would go up on the mountain, right? And God would speak to him. It says like mouth to mouth, face to face, interacting with God. Moses came down from from the mountain. His face was glowing because he was in the presence of God and God's glory shone around him for 40 days and 40 nights. And yet when the tabernacle was built, 
And the glory of God filled the tabernacle. Not even Moses could enter. God's presence was so strong. But this was just a temporary tent. We see further development in the dwelling of God with and among his people in the building of the temple by Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. Once the temple was built, once it was complete, the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant into the holy place. And listen to what happened. It's very similar to Exodus 40. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Remember the the, the main thesis today, the church is a spiritual house where God lives. But we see further development. At the beginning of the book of John, we hear these wonderful words. In the beginning, this is the first, first verse of John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. These words, of course, refer to Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Several verses later, we hear John saying this, And the Word, this eternal God, Word of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, referring to the incarnation of God in Christ. God came to dwell among his people in Jesus Christ. The words he dwelt literally mean this. He spread his tabernacle. That's what God did in the coming of Christ. God came and spread his tabernacle among his people and lived and walked among them. And oh, how many of us wish that we could have been there and seen him and touched him. But even Jesus, in preparation of his departure, he turned the attention of his disciples to the coming of the Spirit. He said, you know him, you know the Holy Spirit, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. He says he dwells with you. For the three years Jesus walked the earth with, with his disciples, they saw the Holy Spirit at work, right? I mean, it was Jesus, when he was baptized, he came up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And then he went about doing his public ministry. They saw the Holy Spirit in action. The Holy Spirit was with them. But Jesus goes further and says, and he will be in you. And then the day of Pentecost came, which was marked by an enormous world-changing event. <clears throat> right, the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit of God was poured out and unleashed on the world. And ever since, ever since, the gathered church has been the special dwelling place of God. Paul claims plainly in 2 Corinthians 6 this fact when he says it is fulfillment of what God has spoken previously Verse 16, he says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them 
and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Probably quoting Leviticus 26. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now when God lives in his house and dwells in his house, he is not silent and he is not inactive. He walks among his people. He lives among his people. So when Paul says in Ephesians 2.22, our verse for today, that you also are being built together to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, he knows this is fulfilling God's promise of what he had spoken beforehand. Gordon Fee in his book, God's Empowering Presence, says it is God's own presence among us that marks us off as the people of God and in the language of Moses is what distinguishes us from all the other people on the face of the earth. That's what Moses said. Exodus 32, or maybe 33. The people, you know, they built this, this golden calf when Moses was up on the mountain and... Moses comes down because God tells him, the the people that you brought out of Egypt are committing idolatry, abomination. God was going to wipe them out. And Moses pleaded that he wouldn't. And God said, Moses pleaded with God and said, if you do not go with us, don't send us up. For how else will the nations of the world know that we are your people unless you are with us? This is a fulfillment of God's promise. God dwelling among his people. Third, I want you to see this is an ongoing building project. Paul says, you also are being built together. You also are being built together. First, notice the words, you are being. What is that? That's present tense, continuous action. God is presently building his church. Jesus said that very clearly in Matthew 16, that I will build my church. And he is at work building his church. He is at work building his temple, the church of the living God. You are being built together. As more and more people come to Christ, more and more people are being built together. Think about this. You are part of this structure. You, right now, today, are part of this structure that God is building together. The raw material is people. Peter uses the metaphor of living stones. Jesus is the cornerstone, and we all are living stones that are being fitted together to be a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood where we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. God does not dwell in buildings. He doesn't dwell in church programs. He doesn't dwell in musical instruments. He doesn't dwell in speakers. He doesn't dwell in multimedia. None of it. He dwells in his people. He dwells in his people. All these things could be taken away. And everything that's significant, the church would lose nothing that's significant. Because if God is among us, then that's all we need. 
what if this is not our present experience? Up until now, all I've said is descriptive, describing what God does, right? God is at work in Christ, bringing us together, building us to be a dwelling place by his spirit. What if this is not our experience? The New Testament seems to indicate that all of this can be true, and yet for the very people that it's true for, they may be unaware of it. And because they're unaware of it, they're unresponsive and unbelieving in regards to the truth. Is God among us? Are we more like Jacob? Didn't even know it. Pray that God would awaken us today. Pray that he would awaken us today. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. This is the supreme need of the church today. In one way, the main trouble with the Christian church as she is at this present moment, probably written in the mid-60s or early 70s when he said this, the main trouble with every one of us in our daily life and living is that we fail to realize that the living God is among us. What is the church, he asks? It is this institution, this body in which God dwells. He is he has promised that I will be in you. I will dwell in you. I will walk among you. That is what he said to the children of Israel and that is what is transferred exactly in the same way to the Christian church. The church is not a human organization and institution. She is as the apostle Paul puts it, a great building in which God dwells, a habitation of God. Paul seems to assume this need too in the Corinthian church. He asks this rhetorical question. He asks it both of individuals, but then he asks it of the entire church. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he asks the church, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then he asks individuals and he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have received from God and you are not your own? It's amazing. Apparently, there's times we don't know. The Corinthian, the, the people of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, I believe Paul is specifically addressing sexual sin in their midst. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of God? That God's spirit dwells inside of you? What are you doing, right? When we give ourselves to sin and worldliness, and it's because often we, just, we don't know, we forgot, we forgot that God dwells among us, we forgot that our bodies, our, our physical bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit we've received from God. At the end of the day, here's the crux of the matter. A Spirit-filled church is a church filled with Spirit-filled people. A Spirit-filled church is a church filled with Spirit-filled people. 
Because the church is the people. The church is the gathered saints together, worshiping him, connecting with one another, growing in Christ, being equipped for the work of ministry and leaving to reach out to those around us. Paul says this in Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The words be filled, be filled with the Spirit, it gives us idea of be filled and keep being filled. Don't think back to a time when you were filled or when you had this especially dynamic time with the Lord. Don't, don't do that. Be filled and keep being filled. Be filled today. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's seek to be a church filled with the Spirit, which means you and I, people filled with the Spirit. Filled with power from on high so that we can worship and honor the Lord as we ought, so that we can become all that God intends for us to be. I want to just do something here toward the end. I I want us just to ask that God would fill us afresh. Jesus said, Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For whoever asks receives. And to him who seeks, he'll find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened to him. He goes on to say, If you, being an an evil parent, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Luke chapter 11. Let's ask. Let's ask right now. Holy Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We come to you through Jesus, only through Christ. We have no business coming to you on our own merits or because we are good or because we had a good morning or because we're putting forth a lot of effort. We come to you through Jesus alone. And in him, we thank you, Father, that you are rich in mercy. We thank you, Father, that your word says, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more, Father, we ask right now that as we take this journey looking at what, is, what does a Spirit-filled church look like? What is a church where the Spirit is dynamically, powerfully dwelling in our midst? What does that look like? God, that there would be sweet and powerful encounters with you, that our times together would increase in the sense of an awareness of your presence among us, God, that you do glorious and wonderful things in our midst. And God, that we would be sent out of here emboldened and strengthened and and empowered to live for you throughout the week, whatever that looks like in our daily life. But right now, Father, we ask for a fresh filling of your spirit. We ask you to fill us, Father, with your Holy Spirit. Pour out your spirit upon us, we ask right now. For the sake of your name and your glory, for the good of your church, 
for the good of this world, for the sake of this world even, this world that we live among. Fill us with your spirit, God, we pray. Fill us to overflowing. Jesus, you said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we come, Jesus, right now to drink. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come as we drink of Jesus and fill us and flow out of us like powerful, strong rivers of living water. In Jesus' name.